Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R again today. We've got an hour of science. We have so many guests in the green room. We had to expand the green room chair situation this morning. <laughs> Not quite true. Uh, Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good it's to a, see you. Yeah, I've just been overseas, I which know. I kind of feel terribly guilty about because really none of us should travel overseas, but I had a yeah. very... Very, very um, fruitful professional time at a in really great international symposium about teaching scientists how to be better communicators. Wow. So. I, I tuned out after about the 17th uh, photograph that was awesome <laughs> that you posted. Come <laughs> I on. Like, I didn't share that many. <laughs> yeah, there was a few. Dr. Ewan, you <laughs> okay, mate? I'm good. I mean, yeah. the sun's out. How good's the weather today? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's weirdly warm. Mm. Like well, I was looking at my watch and that. it said <laughs> eight degrees and I went outside and I thought, this is not yeah. eight degrees. It's almost autumnal again. It's sort mm. of that cold, crisp, but sunny weather. Yeah. It's all over the place at yeah. the moment. But, I prefer uh, a bit of cloud cover, a bit of, bit of rain. I'm a, yeah. you know, I'm a more of a, a Morlock from yeah, the time no, machine. Yeah, no, blue sunny sky for me every, every time. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, folks, we're going to start off with some news today, and then we have uh, three guests coming in. We're talking about all sorts of stuff today, a variety of topics, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, Dr. Jen, do you want to start us off? Well, I think it's. I think I should because I do want to talk about weather. Can't mm-hmm. kind of help it. Uh, I think everyone will be aware we've had a pretty disturbing week and month when it comes to climate news. So all of these completely unprecedented temperature anomalies. So we've just had the warmest September on record globally. The average surface air temperature was sixteen point three eight degrees, which is point nearly a full degree, point nine three degrees above the average from nineteen ninety one to twenty twenty. Um, and 0.5 degrees above the previous warmest September ever on record, which was only in 2020. So that's a big difference, 0.5 of a degree. Um, And this was the most anomalous warm month on record, if you go back to the kind of the records we have for for kind of monthly global averages, which is back to 1940. Um, And so the the month as a whole was 1.75 degrees warmer than the September average for our pre-industrial reference period. We've hit the 1.5 target. Yay, humans. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess for us locally, you know, everyone would have heard the news in Gippsland, these unseasonably early bushfires. And then on the very same day, residents being told to prepare for major flooding. So this is what gets called a compound event, which obviously we're expecting to become more common. Um, And I I don't know if this is true. I didn't check with the bomb, but the local mayor was, was recorded as saying it's the first time ever that a Victorian emergency map has shown bushfire warning and flood warning for the same area on the same day, wow. which I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if yeah, that were true. Yeah. It seems pretty unlikely, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose there's a fringe times of year where, you know, we get heavy storms and we get heavy warm winds and then changes come through. So, you know. Yeah. It's, look, it's it's yeah. possible. But so, so essentially here we are locally <clears throat> experiencing this, mm. that 2023 is on track to be the warmest year ever. And we all know that mm. this is seeming to, you know, obviously be coming sl- somewhat quicker than maybe we expected. But what I really wanted to talk about for news was that a, a new UNICEF report was released on Thursday this week, which was 
looking at the displacement of children around the world as a result of climate disasters. Mm. And the reason why this report is really important is because they say children are often kind of statistically invisible in in Mm. stories about what's happening around the world and climate change because usually the statistics are not broken down by age. And children being displaced as a result of climate disasters is really important to know because if kids become separated from their caregivers, they Mm. are more at risk of, you know, Mm. child trafficking, other exploitation, and they're also more likely to not have access to healthcare so we can have kids missing out on vaccinations, Mm. malnutrition, missing out on or, or, you know, becoming ill with different diseases and also lacking um, access to education. So it's really important that we know what's happening with kids. And the report, as you would expect, is just awful. So what they've said is that in the the six-year period between 2016 and 2021, more than 43 million children were displaced as a result of climate disasters. So if you want to think about it this way, that's equivalent to 20,000 kids a day every day for six years, Um, and mostly because of uh, impacts from uh, storms and floods, but droughts and fires also Mm -hmm. played an effect. And, of course, they're saying that, you know, tens of millions more children are going to be impacted by climate Mm. events as the years go on. Um, And, you know, you can imagine the countries that are being most impacted are the countries with the least ability to respond in terms of early preemptive evacuation. So the biggest numbers are coming from India and China, but that's partly because they have the highest populations around yeah. the world. Um, so, you know, w- what do we do? It means that we have to, among all of the dozens, hundreds, thousands of actions we have to take in terms of tackling mm. climate change, we have to think really carefully about in these countries that are ill-equipped to face what's coming, think specifically about how do we help children not suffer yeah. even worse fates than they would otherwise because we're talking millions and millions of children. Yeah, it, it's a huge worry. I think for me, um, you know, as, a, as a parent to you, you wonder what sort of world we're leaving to our kids. And mm, absolutely. The one thing that I keep thinking back on, and you know, this is my old physics background and doing some heavy-duty calculations in my early days, is the difficulty in modeling these sorts of parameters, you know, these mm. sorts of scenarios as we head into some of these unknown areas, because yep. you know, modeling weather and climate is damn hard when you kind of know where things are going mm. uh, normally. Yep. But as soon as you start breaching some of these thresholds and some of these sort of you know, no, points of no return and things become more chaotic, then I think one of the things we're going to have to accept as a society, and I've noticed over the last couple of decades, every time a scientist updates their data, everyone goes, oh, you were wrong. And mm. they freak out. Like, the, the, you know, It's like, that's what science is. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to see more and more of that as mm. we move into this new changing mm. climate world because models are going to have to be updated more often, yeah. and they're going to become more complicated, and it's going to become more difficult to make predictions, which means, you know, expect things to be updated more often and mm. for science to continue to try and strive to to give the right answers. But it's not going to be nice and clean and simple. And if, you know, we've all gotten used to the, you know, on that seven-day forecast, they were wrong on day seven, <laughs> yeah. and I don't like that. It's like, well, actually, you know, we're going to be in a real pickle with some of the science, the longer-term science data. Because and, yeah, and I think that's why this report is really good, because mm. they've done a lot of 
forward modelling. They've predicted yeah. future rates of child displacement. Um, and that means now that that, that modelling is done, we can. We can go back frequently and run it again and see yeah. what's changing. So they're suggesting that um, river floods are going to be a top driver right. as time goes on. They're suggesting that river floods are going to account for 96 million displaced children yeah. in the next 30 yeah. years because as the climate changes, the river flooding, you know, is obviously going to yeah. become more um, more prevalent. And cyclone winds, they think, are mm. also going to be a really serious issue going yeah. forward. But as you say, the modelling is important because we can keep updating it and see yeah. what's There, there was one thing about, about cyclones and hurricanes, typhoons, wherever you're sitting, uh, that I thought was really interesting. And we've, we've talked over the years about, um, I remember Dr. Ailey being on the show talking about this once, about maybe getting more cyclones, maybe, maybe getting more intense cyclones. Mm. And there were things like, you know, very high-speed, high-level winds that can knock cyclones out. You may get more of those with climate change, so that actually might reduce things. Mm. Yep. But the one thing I saw recently that I'd never heard anyone talk about was the rate at which a cyclone drew, uh, grew mm. from being relatively, you know, Category 2 to Category 4 or 5, and that that happened really, really quickly recently. And I thought maybe maybe that's one of the things we haven't been talking about mm. as well, is that some of these relatively small storms could grow much faster because they have a good energy source mm. in the warm ocean. Well, I was going to say, more. people are more powerful, right? That's where they get their energy from, <clears throat> yeah. from the, yeah. the ocean temperature. So, Interesting stuff. All right. Uh, well, that's it. Yeah, very, very, very thanks, much Jen. a downer, sorry. But, but we've got to talk about <laughs> yeah, it, right? Yeah, we have and to we talk about it. we can't pretend it's not it's happening. important stuff. Dr. Yun. It's not usual that I'm the slightly cheerier one. <laughs> yeah. here we, I did am. A, we did a role reversal today. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> I'm going to talk about the uh, Bird of the Year contest, which oh, I know yeah. I think you've been following uh, a little bit as well, Shane. Yep. And uh, did anyone actually, were you championing anyone in the contest? Did you have a what, person, or, I'm, not person I'm not, a bird that you were voting for? I hold for? no bias. You know, I even okay, like, even now, like now magpies. Now tell me who you were voting for. I even like magpies. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm always team gang gang. Gang team gang gang. gang, gang. Yeah. <laughs> Got to be part of the gang gang See, gang. I was team Pelican because of Storm Boy oh, back really? in the day. Gee. And I've always loved Mr. Percival for those who know the film. <laughs> uh, but uh, they were knocked out relatively early on, sadly, which I think is a travesty. But uh, He's so hurting, Dr. The, Shane. He's been the Australian hurting. Bird of the Year contest has wrapped up this week. Uh, and I'll tell you the top ten. Uh, the winner was the Swift Parrot, and I'll yep. talk about them in a second. The Tawny Frogmouth came in second, and it's been runner-up a number of times now, mm. so it's getting quite close to uh, chalking up a win. The Gang Gang was in third. Yes. Life in Kookaburra. Willy Wagtail, Carnaby's Black Cockatoo, Australian Magpie, Spotted Partalote, Gouldian Finch and the Peregrine Falcon. So a pretty nice mix of birds. So about 300,000 plus votes were cast. Uh, Interestingly, and again somewhat um, uh, depressing, but uh, about, in fact, four out of ten of the top ten birds are threatened with extinction and no more so than the swift parrot. So the swift parrot is a critically endangered parrot. It's one of the only uh, few um, species of parrots that migrate. Um, So we know the orange-bellied parrot also migrates. So the swift parrot actually migrates from uh, southeastern Australia, the mainland, um, to Tasmania for breeding as well as food, so flowering gums and hollows in trees that it needs. And uh, it's estimated um, that there's probably fewer than the 300 left. And Mm. if we continue... The way we're continuing, which uh, there's a range of threats, but the biggest one by far is habitat destruction through logging, essentially, of trees. Uh, There may be as few as 100 left by 2030 or so, uh, which means it's well on its way to extinction. Um, So, look, it's it's great to see the interest in the birds, uh, but... Definitely, I think you know it's it's fairly obvious that this was a somewhat of a protest vote, shall we say, that mm. people want to see more being done for this bird. Uh, the recovery plan for this bird was released recently <coughs> um, without 
prior consultation with the recovery planning group for the bird. <laughs> so what now? <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, that didn't go down particularly well yeah. and it also didn't address the key threats properly, which is the logging of its habitat. So another threat that it faces in Tasmania mm. is uh, sugar gliders, bizarrely, that were introduced to Tasmania. Mm. So beautiful gliding possums that many people might know. They actually get into their hollows occasionally and boot the parrots out but also kill the chicks. And that's right. thought to be compounded by the fact that there's not very many hollows left because all the trees have been cut down. So you've got there, in the case, an invasive species, which was actually obviously an, a native species but introduced right. to Tasmania, compounded with a threat that we've caused. But far and away, logging is the big threat. So I think, you know, a little bit like the Mammal mm. of the Year contest, it's fantastic to see the amount of engagement um, you know, yeah. with all these incredible birds that we have in Australia. But, yeah, sadly, nearly half of the top 10 are threatened with extinction. And likewise, we saw with the mammals, you know, it's really mm. just an opportunity to make people aware of what we've got and how special what we've got is. You know, yeah. people are just incredibly <laughs> jealous of the wildlife we have in Australia, but yeah. we're not doing a brilliant job of taking care of it. So it really is just another message that we need to lift our game. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Ewan. And I thought you were being positive. No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he did his best. It was pretty, it was, yeah, it was yeah, 60% positive, 40% negative. That's, that's about all you get from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Triple R. In the studio with us now is Alana Forbes. Alana is a PhD candidate in clinical neuropsychology and a provisional psychologist at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health and part of Monash University. Alana, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks, Shane. So great to be back. Now, you were part of our 20 in 20 group. Yeah, that's right. So last time we gave you a minute. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to give you 10 times that this time Very around. generous. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. I think, what do we cover in a minute? Like, we, we, we've, got so much, we've got so much time now. To I don't about, know. Yeah. I just spoke so fast. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I think everyone did. Now, uh, but you work in the areas of autism and ADHD. Mm, are, yeah. these, are these always connected, autism and ADHD? Fabulous question. And that's what makes them so tricky to diagnose is they're highly co-occurring. So they don't always occur together. um, But once you've got one, you've got an increased likelihood for having the other one. Right. And does that mainly go one way or like, so I think, I mean, autism obviously is something that's diagnosed now, Mm. hopefully fairly early on, Mm. but I have friends who've been diagnosed with ADHD as adults. Yeah. Yeah. It's a juicy topic. So um, look, it goes both ways, highly co-occurring rates either way. Um, and when we talk about adult diagnosis, it can be a bit tricky because what we're looking at is disentangling symptoms um, that could be masked by, mm. so autism could be masking ADHD, could go yep. the other way, or it could be something else like um, anxiety, another condition altogether that's also highly co-occurring with autism and ADHD. Yeah. I, I think one of the good things these days, of course, is that we see autism as having quite a range mm. compared to the way we clinically used yeah. to approach that because that and that I suppose that also though makes it harder for diagnosis because of that range yeah 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 so um of course we call it um autism spectrum disorder, disorder. as yep. you recognize it's on a spectrum and it can range from individuals who are minimally verbal so they have mm-hmm. less than 50 words through to individuals who have superior intellect um and are really intelligent mm. um but obviously the features of their autism are getting in the way of day-to-day life 
And yeah. those features themselves can be really heterogeneous. So it takes really careful clinical interviewing um, and looking at behaviour across a range of contexts to come to a decision as to whether autism or ADHD are at play for that individual. Yeah. Now, let's talk about you and your work yeah. somewhat because neuropsychologist, how, <laughs> how does that... So I've come across neurologists. Yeah. I've come across neuroscientists. Yeah. I've come across neurosurgeons, mm. psychologists, and psychiatrists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neuropsychologists. Where, yeah. where are we sitting? What does that mean? Um, we're a bit of a sort of niche field. A lot of people don't really know about us, and I didn't know certainly until I was in my psychology training. Um, so, look, we are psychologists first and foremost. Mm-hmm. We are concerned with um, mood and behaviour as well. Um, but our specialty comes in when um, we've got questions of cognition or thinking skills. Right. Um, so... Often when I see a patient, I'm doing my training as a neuropsychologist, I'll spend two to three hours with them doing cognitive assessments as well as interviewing that looks at all of the domains of their cognition um, to understand where there's particular areas they're having difficulties and how that maps on to functioning in daily life. Right, right. Interesting. Now, one of the things that, well, I was just going to say you, Jen, but you and to some degree as we're interested in communication, um, (laughs) but, but specifically you work in the area of social communication. What what does that mean specifically? Yeah, so it's all of those things that are unwritten rules to us when it comes to communication and it can include verbal and Mm non-verbal communication. Mm -hmm. So um, things like eye contact, um, not just, you know, that we make eye contact, but how do we regulate it? How do we modify it? Um, And then in terms of when it comes to spoken communication, how do we change our language for the context? I'm not talking to you like I'd talk to my mates, for example. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm (laughs) (laughs) In a different setting, maybe, Shane. Um, But... Yeah, so it really comes down to um, really that modulation and it's just really automatic for a lot of us. But, of Mm. course, in autism, one of the key features is um, that there's difficulties with that social communication. So. And is it difficulties in the differences between like various locations? Like as you said, you may yeah. speak to me differently here yeah. though if we're down at the pub and we're all friends. Yeah. Is it different differences that are causing the problem or the individual parts themselves or both? Yeah, it can be both. So um I guess what's a really hot topic is the idea of masking. Um mm. so Girls with autism um, are thought to be quite good at masking and it leads yep. to delayed diagnosis for them. So they can pick up, oh, I should be making eye contact in this situation with you now yep. um, and that sort of thing. So um, it's really a mixed bag and that's what makes diagnosis so tricky. Yeah, yeah. when it comes to sort of, I guess, you know, making a diagnosis, yeah. how, how much of the diagnosis mm. is influenced by the benchmarks? So you just, you just mentioned you know, modes of communication. Mm-hmm. It just always strikes me that, you know, we sort of have this idea of how we should communicate. Yeah. But, of course, people communicate and, and also understand things differently, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, visual learners versus mm-hmm. people that understand, you know, reams of text and so yeah. forth. So when it comes to communication, how, how is that benchmark actually constructed? And is, it, is, is that benchmark also changing with time as we get a better understanding that people actually do communicate quite differently? And that's yeah. not necessarily abnormal, inverted commas. It's just mm. different. So, yeah, yeah well, what are we sort of learning there as well? It, it's such a great question because 
Um, we make a diagnosis based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And there's some things that are very socially and culturally informed in that manual. And over time, things have been ditched from that, quite rightly so, Um, like heterosexuality, for example. That's not a disorder. Um, (laughs) So really what it comes down to is that there are it's a functional impact. Any yeah. diagnosis that we yeah. make, um, whether it's autism, anxiety, yeah. depression, yeah. is it's impacting yeah. day-to-day life. Yeah. It's impacting functioning. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, Lana, I'm interested, obviously, you know, you've explained to us just how difficult these diagnoses mm. are and, and all of the different things are taken into account and yeah. there's going to be so many challenges there. I'm interested to hear a bit more about what, what are the downsides of a delayed diagnosis? I'm assuming that if we could diagnose people, presumably particularly children earlier, that would lead to better outcomes. But mm. what are you seeing in terms of, you know, the range of time it can take for a diagnosis and what the then flow-on effects yeah. are? Yeah, so um, research from our lab has found that there's diagnostic delays of over three years for wow. autism and ADHD. It's a long time. Mm. It is. And clinically, when you see people who've been experiencing these conditions undiagnosed, it's got a whole range of psychosocial outcomes. So it can mean that um, education um, is impacted if they've got ADHD and they're finding it hard to sit down and attend in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um they're having a hard time taking in information, so it can impact their education. Of course, awful things like bullying um, can occur and anxiety and depression are highly co-occurring as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we're able to identify these conditions early on um, so that we can put strategies in place to help these people and to help them better understand themselves. There's so mm-hmm. much power in understanding your own brain. It's interesting. Now, speaking of the brain, you've yeah. been looking at the cerebellum. Yeah. And because we – now, this is normally about motor function, right? But yeah. But there's cognition elements there as yeah. well. So what are, you, what are you looking at there specifically? Yeah, look, thank you for asking me this because I feel like I'm on a crusade for the poor cerebellum rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I value mine. <laughs> yeah. So our cerebellum um, is um, like our mini brain that's at the base of our brain, Um And traditionally, as you say, it's been understood as a region of motor control, Um, but the poor thing's been underestimated. It really has Mm. cognitive significance. Um, And we know this from sort of two lines of research. The first is um, lesions or tumours in the cerebellum, and the second is imaging, of course. Um, uh, Obviously, our understanding of the brain originally came from when things went wrong and people Mm. um, had... Um, tumours or injury. So um, we've seen that there's impacts on um, a whole range of areas of cognition from our executive function, that's like our CEO of the brain, so planning, organisation, through to language, um, which is what social communication um, falls under the umbrella of, um, and visual skills. Um, And then in imaging studies, we've seen that it overlaps with areas, um, the neural networks overlap with areas that are significant for um, cognition. And it's mostly that posterior cerebellum is the region of significance there. So that bottom half of the cerebellum. Right. That's fascinating. And presumably that imaging is like things like 
PET scanning and positive yeah. emission topography and all, all the sort of Everything. live imaging of the brain as it's thinking. Yeah, yeah from volumetric to functional, um, lots has been done. Yeah. And they're quite confident in that cerebellum now. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you get to play one of those funky new seven Tesla <laughs> MRIs? Or? Do you know what I do? I oh, stick really? my yeah. kids in those, yeah. <laughs> For the research, yeah. Um, Sorry, I thought you meant your actual kids. No, like, no, uh, no. <laughs> I don't have kids. Yeah. My um, my research kids. Your research kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and do you find a massive difference between that and like the standard three Tesla that we have in you know most environments, hospitals, and so forth? Do you know what I haven't had experience, so I can't tell you. But yeah, um, yeah it's, supposedly. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty top notch. Yeah, yeah, it's top notch. Very, very expensive, very nice stuff. Well, Elena, it's great um, having you back in, and Thank I think you. uh, you're doing some fine work. And just just before you go, I just, I just, one last question because yeah. you mentioned the term masking, and mm. you know it's, it's being heard a lot. But mm. this must be exhausting for people yeah. who have to do this all the time. Yeah. Is that something that people are looking into? Because that sort of you know effort that mm. no one sees that's ongoing all the time for people with with the, some of these difficulties. Yeah. Um, I think is just so under underestimated. Mm. Look, I'm not across the research in that area as such, but I'm sure there is. And clinically, anecdotally, I can tell you that um, you're spot on. It really is exhausting for people. Yeah. Interesting. Soon to be Dr. Forbes. When's that happening? hope so. 18 months to two years. We'll see how it goes. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, As I say, the most guests these days, just make sure you finish before we get to land on the moon again. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) You've got You've got probably three years. Okay, I think I can do that. Yeah, sure, right. (laughs) Alan Forbes, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us again and uh, keep up the amazing work. Great. Thanks so much, Shane. Great to be here. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Yeah, you are listening to Triple R, if you haven't worked it out. <laughs> uh, we do good science here on Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Carolyn Vanderson, a tall poppy uh, winner for 2023. Carolyn, welcome Woo-hoo! to the Congratulations. studio. Congratulations. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. You're also, from, of course, from the Doherty Institute, uh, which is the important thing, um, <laughs> doing some great work there. And you, I'm sure you know one of our colleagues, uh, Laura McKay. Who is, yeah, I know yeah, her. But yeah. She's on the show quite often. Yeah, she she does stuff there, I think, at the Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she, they, Last time I checked, that. she was doing pretty well there. Uh, she's doing okay. Uh, <laughs> we told her everything that she knows. There's, that's fair to say that that's not true. Um, now, Caroline, you work in something that I think a lot of a lot of us have probably been fascinated by for years, and that is, you know, kids get sick and they kind of get better real quick, and then they give it to us, their parents, and we we can't handle it. Yeah, it's mainly their grandparents who cannot handle it. Yeah. So the really old people. So that's something that has been fascinating for for me for so long. That the same virus caused such a different disease outcome, mm. whether you're a young person or a very old person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and why that is happening? Why is our mm. immune system not able to fight anymore? Basically, yeah. against these viruses. I think you just gave away your age, Doctor Shane. Well, if you're saying that your body can't cope with these viruses, <laughs> you know, uh, that's the way it is. Anyway, um, <laughs> the the thing that's interesting to me is this seems a bit counterintuitive because it. it it's, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the immune system over the last few years. I think it's become, you know, the latest topic. You know, I mean, before that, there was the Kardashians, and now we're talking about <laughs> immune cells. Everyone's talking about, yeah. but 
It would seem to me as though the body learns as it goes along. So it seems a bit counterintuitive that as we get older, we become less capable of fighting off infections. I understand our organs and stuff get a little bit slower and stuff and not so good, but I would have thought our immune system gets better and better and better. Yes, to some extent that is true. So when you encounter viral infections as a child, you learn Mm. to recognize them and you learn to respond to them much quicker and that actually is being maintained as an adult. And those cells are amazing. Right. But when you get to that very old age, then your immune system loses this ability. It's almost like you're retiring, your immune system retires with you. <laughs> oh boy, what if you don't so retire? Much to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, I mean, how do we know this? Like, how do we actually? Is it just that people are getting sick more often, or um, when they're older, or is it? Do you see things like? someone gets a cold and it lasts longer, or what do you see? Yeah, it's a bit of both. So infections last longer, but they're also less able to recover. Um, So they Mm. might have longer symptoms, Uh, but they can also end up in the hospital. So they might actually get so sick that they cannot recover at home anymore, but need to have special treatment to help them recover from the infection. And in worst cases, it might actually cause death. Yeah. Are the cells different? So, you know, it seems to me as though I have the same cells, you know, my, I know some of them get older and I, I suppose the energy levels in that I would have as an you know, older adult will change. But I, I try and think on the biological level here, there's these individual cells, these immune cells doing a job. What's changing about them? That is a really, really good question. So we always thought based on chronic infections like CMV and EBV that your same cell goes on your whole life Mm. and helps protect you as a child and as an adult. But then it sort of falls asleep when you get to that really old age and therefore it doesn't respond very well. We, in our study, actually looked at uh, acute infections. In our case, it was influenza, but another virus that you may know very well is um, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2. And in those cases, your cells actually get replaced. So these really good cells that you have as a child or as an adult, they actually get replaced by basically the suboptimal version of the cell. The cells are less able to recognize these virus-infected cells. They, from the inside, might still be very similar to young people having the potential to cause a good effect. But the outside is different, and that means that they cannot, they can just not see the infected cell anymore. Right. So is that just for that one particular type of infection or across the board? Well, we looked at influenza, so we're yep. now going to expand to other viral diseases to see what happens. We know that for chronic infections like EBV and CMV, something different happens, but this also affects the way we think of how we can treat or cure mm. elder individuals. So for one hand, for chronic infections, you might need to reawake the cells that are still there. Whereas here, you might want to boost the cells that you have as a child or an adult to last longer till your old age. So that's right. a different approach. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my question is very similar to Shane's and you've sort of partly answered it. I guess what I was curious about is, you know, which phase in dealing with a pathogen is the problem. So, yeah, you've got this library that your body has built up over many, many years of all these infections that you've responded to. Uh, so there's sort of the library of what to do or what it looks like. But then there's what to do about it once you recognise what it is. So is is it a problem with both? Is it it doesn't recognise what this thing is, or is it that it, if it does recognise it, it also has a you know a less um, you know it's it's less powerful and it once was in actually dealing with that infection as well. Yeah. So in the, in this case, it's actually being replaced. So your library actually loses one of the good books basically yeah. and gets back with a <clears throat> sub quality book. Yeah. That's just not as good basically. Yeah. Um, so it just doesn't recognize an infected cell. So when you get infected, your immune system turns off all these flags to alert, to alert 
your immune system to get all your cells to the side of infection. Yeah. And then they bind and they actually kill and step but once, the cells to that. Once it can recognize, does it still function relatively well in terms of dealing with the infection? Yes. So it really is just a library issue. Yeah. So yeah. very likely these cells, yeah. once they, when, if they can, if you put another receptor yeah. on there, they probably yeah. will respond very okay. similar to children and adults because yeah. we find that the inside looks very similar. Yeah. So yeah. 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 I, I find this sort of stuff, it's so fascinating because to me, you know, our bodies always, if, if you drill down, there's usually some sort of evolutionary reason for our bodies doing mm. certain yeah. things. I mean, do, do we have any idea as to why we might be, changing in this way because this seems to it's kind of like a fault seems like a pretty fundamental failing right that your body's developed this learning over all of these years and suddenly to lose some of that acquired knowledge immune knowledge that is a really really good question um well if you think of evolution the one thing that needs to happen is you have to give your abilities to your offspring yep Mm. and these changes happen after we don't get kids anymore so (laughs) so there's no it doesn't matter it doesn't matter anymore there's no cost no there's no cost it's it's not that people who don't lose these cells live longer but still have children that have that really good ability it can happen but it's not affecting the the amount of children that they have so it's not an evolutionary effect basically yeah there's no selective pressure yeah. on us to keep that knowledge because by that stage it's you know exactly. we're past our child rearing days Damn yeah. you, evolution. We're, on the, we're on the downhill yeah. slide dr shane yeah well there's so many things like that though isn't <laughs> it? there's medicine. so many illnesses that because we are living to 80 mm. to 100 years of age these are things that in an mm. evolutionary sense haven't been knocked out because mm. there's yeah. no disadvantage in terms of our population yeah. Exactly. And that also happens, for example, with diabetes or yeah. obesity. Yeah. It happens after you already have children or it doesn't yeah. kill you before you have children, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you give those traits on. Interesting. Now, uh, so in terms of things like um, vaccination programs and so forth, what does this mean? Because presumably you have to take that into account if you're looking at sort of either long-term vaccination, so things like when we get the measles vaccine, so for the last longer, or or shorter-term ones like when we get the flu injection each year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is particularly true for flu infection uh, uh, vaccines, for example. Mm. Um, The current vaccines, they don't stimulate these cells. So you just take them the way your doctor recommends you yep. if you they and they will protect you uh, to the virus that is currently circulating. Yep. But we're now trying to think with the new COVID vaccines, they have the ability to actually stimulate these CDA T cells. So we actually have a way to improve our influenza vaccines. But when we do this, we want to target the highest risk group, which are the elderly. And we mm. might need to think of how we design those vaccines ahead of mm-hmm. actually making them and to help them for Every age group, basically. Yeah. And, so, and that's where we get into this thing where, you know, Ewan's looking at me, but um, <laughs> what, you know, if, there were, if there were different types of vaccines depending on age, which it sounds like we might have to get to, which would be interesting, presumably you'd have to test someone's immunity levels and their immune system prior to vaccination, which I think would be really an interesting yeah. add-on to a health system. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely something we do. So in any vaccination trial, you take a sample before you get vaccinated and after you get vaccinated, and then you measure the effect of how well the immune cells, either your uh, antibodies or your T-cells, actually get activated or multiply and how effective they are in recognising. Yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating. Just another question again in terms of this library. I mean, obviously it's deteriorating with age, it seems. You know, you're losing these cells, literally. Um, What do we know about environmental effects on that? So obviously we know that immune function is very strongly tied with diet and exercise and things like that as well. So if you look around the world, you know, does that pattern actually change in terms of this loss of ability? 
Yeah, that is a good question. That is not something that I'm particularly yeah. researching, but we know from um, pandemic outbreaks yeah. that the ability for viruses to make very high casualties depends on which region you are on. Yeah. And this probably also has to do with diet. For example, yeah. the 1918 pandemic, which is a very long time yeah. <laughs> ago, but was very, very severe, yeah. was much more severe in populations that were feminine, where famine was at the time. Mm. So people who were underfed yeah. um, suffered way more than other regions mm. in on the world. So, yeah. yeah, that's very cool stuff. And just before you go, Carolyn, I just wanted to ask, like, what sort of instruments do you use in the lab to examine this? I mean, is this, is it all, you know, these PCR polymerase things, you know, where you just, you know, or, or is it microscope? What do you use to, to work this stuff out? Yeah, we use those too, but we start, <laughs> we start with a fax machine and it's not the fax machine that paper comes out. <laughs> um, it's actually a way that we can actually measure what, type of proteins the cell makes. So what you do is you have an antibody specific for that particular protein you're interested in and you label it with a fluorescent dye. Mm. So actually you basically coloring your cells with different colors and this machine reads out all these different colors um, for you and then you can, with some analysis, to find out what type of cell they are. Are they naive cells? cells that have never seen a virus or are they cells that are memory cells that are really good in functioning or are they exhausted cells, for example, that have lost their ability to function. So that is one thing that we do. And what we can do with the machine as well is sort these into different wells and then use the PCR to actually look at the receptors on the surface. So that's really exciting. That's wild stuff. Now, just before we let you go, the Young Tall Poppy Program, you're one of the 2023 Victorian winners. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, What does that mean? What are you going to go and do? Oh, Party, um, obviously. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I'm very much on it with the award, and it's actually based on the recognition of doing all these public outreach events, yeah. informing people with the research that I do what I get enthusiastic about, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that with this award I can continue doing that. It's a good support of doing things yeah. outside of the lab. Well, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, I hope you have a good time doing it. I Thank and you. here's one for you, you uh, in regards to my age. I was a top poppy in 2005. Congratulations. Surely yeah, you were still in yeah. nappies, Dr. They, Shane. They used the term young tall poppies back then. <laughs> <laughs> don't think it applies to me anymore. Um, Carolyn, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. And congratulations. I think you had a, a Nature article um, published in the last week or so. Thank uh, you. Kicking goals. Enormous. Well done. Just, you, get, you put on T-shirts and stuff, run around with it, you know, make sure people recognise it's It's a great accolade. Well done. And thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Caroline van der Sun from the Doherty Institute and one of the young, tall poppy uh, winners for 2023 for Victoria. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Now, welcome back, folks. You're in the last 15 minutes or 13 minutes of Einstein and Gogo. We've had some amazing guests. We've got one more for you. Dr. Grace Lawrence is a research associate from the Swinburne University of Technology in the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Grace, welcome to Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. And thanks for doing this on sort of short notice. I think I emailed you on Friday or something. It was like, <laughs> I saw some stuff from the, the comms people at Swinburne. It was like, let's do it. Let's talk about dark matter. You're not excited at all, are you? 
Shane. Well, I just want to see the look <laughs> on your face. Yeah. We've got a couple of ecologists here, um, so we're going to have to get soft pedal it just a little, oh, Grace. Come on. Uh, we're pretty versatile. <laughs> we're into dark matter too. Uh, now, let's, let's go. Yeah, we've, we've had some great guests in over the years talking about dark matter, and every time I do that, I think, you know, before we have the next guest, we'll have determined what it is and we will have found it. But And yet, you know, decades go by and, and we're still having this conversation. So give us a little bit as to dark matter and, and what are the reasons for it needing to exist? Like why why are we so determined to find it? It's an excellent question. And as you mentioned, the fact that we've been searching for this for almost a century mm. uh, really does speak to its elusiveness. Um, dark matter really does make up a quarter of our entire universe. And Everything else that we see, so the particles that make up the stars, the planets, you, me, the bees, um, (laughs) they make up less than 5% of everything. And so we understand so little about our universe. It's almost impossible to know what we will understand about our universe and our place in it and how our galaxy is going to develop until we discover dark matter because it really is the backbone and the structure that generates everything that we see when we look up into the night sky. And so it tells us how our universe formed and how it will continue to develop. It really does tell us everything. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in terms of um, when we do look up into the night sky, why are we going down the path of we need this new stuff called dark matter as opposed to our current physics is just wrong. Like, you know, there's a choice there, right? So we're, we're I think the majority of well, almost all physicists actually go down one path. Yes. <laughs> why, why is that? Why, why is that choice being made? Well, it's really important to make that sort of or distinguish. So some people do look at this sort of modified Newtonian gravity option, which is Mm. MOND, and that has fallen slightly out of favour for this option of dark matter. And I think the gravitational effects that we see really does indicate to some missing mass. So we have, you know, the peculiar velocities of galaxies showing us that there has to be extra gravity than what we're able to visibly observe. The rotational velocity curves of galaxies just don't add up when you apply Newtonian physics. Um, We see dark matter gravitationally lensing galaxies when we look Mm. with our telescope. So there's a a plethora of indirect evidence for this dark matter. And I think that's very compelling and convincing. But of course... um, we're seeing it indirectly. So that is to say the effects that dark matter are having on these processes yep. and these phenomena, not dark matter itself. And it's that direct detection that we really need to clinch yeah. uh, the discovery. It's interesting. So so just to settle on the, the galaxy one for a second. So like uh, galaxies are spinning at a rate, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, that is so fast that if there wasn't more gravitationally active stuff in there, they would just fly apart. Is that right? Well, in a sense, so what we expect is that the inner region of a galaxy, Newtonian physics, tells us that the inner region should have a deeper gravitational potential, so it should be spinning a lot quicker than Mm -hmm. the outer regions, which have just less stuff in them. But when we actually measure it, it's not that we think they should be um, sort of disintegrating at the edges, but we think that they should be spinning more slowly because there's less matter. But that's not what we find. So they're spinning much more quickly than we would expect, and that tells us that there's this extra mass giving it the gravity to spin more quickly. 
quickly. So does that mean the, the dark matter is predominantly in the outer areas of galaxies, not in the centre? Um, it permeates uh, everything, and because mm-hmm. it interacts, we think, gravitationally, we would expect it to appear at the centre of galaxies right. as well. It's just the fact that um, it's spinning more quickly than we expect at the outer regions that tells us there is a, a population of dark matter there. Right. Interesting. So now we're looking for dark matter here on Earth, right? So this is this is where it gets, gets funky for me. So I can... I shoot up off a rocket at probably the highest speed I've ever shot a rocket towards Pluto, New Horizons. And, you know, years later, it just skims past. Everything's perfect. My Newtonian physics worked beautifully, (laughs) and I didn't take into account dark matter. So how does that play out? Like, what is our expectation of detecting it here, given there's presumably not enough to alter those courses of our you know, spacecraft and so forth, which are really specific. Like we're not talking about, you know, uh, more or less head that way. It's kind of like these things are so specific to get that right. How does that play out? Absolutely. So um, it's a really great question because the density of dark matter in our galaxy is huge. So mm-hmm. on average, there's of order a few hundreds of million to a billion dark matter particles passing through each of us every second. So it is absolutely everywhere. But its interaction rate is such that only about 10 dark matter particles will actually interact with our bodies in a year. So the fact that um, the interaction rate is so low means that the possibility that it's going to, you know, push a rocket off course Mm. um, is negligible. It's not something that we really have to consider. It might knock an electron off the tip, but that (laughs) probably won't make too much of a difference. So, Shane, you can just relax. It's all okay. But the gravitational effects there too, like not so much the particle interaction necessarily, if that's what we're we're actually talking about, you know what what whether or not that interaction can even happen, I think is part of the question. But but the gravitational effects of of dark matter around our solar system are, are negligible or homogeneous. Is that the deal? Yeah. So we do sort of assume. Uh and this is a big assumption, but it's sort of isotropically distributed. So we wouldn't expect um, in the regions that we would be travelling for there to be a concentration such that the gravity would mm. really affect us. Interesting. So what are you working on specifically, Grace, with uh, out at Swinburne? Because, I mean, this is so many people work on this and it is such a big challenge in science. It's a, a multifaceted problem and part of the joy of that is uh, you can approach it from really any way. Mm. So what I do is I use supercomputer simulations to model where dark matter is distributed in our galaxy and then I use that to try and make predictions for how we might detect it directly on Earth and what those signals might look like if we did detect it. When you say detect on Earth, do you mean that the particles are a consequence of of dark matter in those galaxies? So we're actually looking for a direct detection. So we are right. looking to uh, definitively uh, detect a particle dark matter. Wow. So speaking, you know, as an ecologist, as Shane pointed out, who has <laughs> very little understanding of this, like how will you know when you find it? <laughs> what so, would that look like or sound like or feel like? Obviously exciting, but like how will you know? It's a great question and one that uh, lots of people before me have put a lot of thought into. So um, our direct detection method uh, uses a radio pure crystal that we put underground to shield it from radiation from space and technology and 
bananas. Um, <laughs> and what we do is we take this crystal that's sort of optimized to react most frequently with a dark matter particle. And we're searching for something called a WIMP dark matter particle, so a weakly interacting massive particle. And what happens is that dark matter particle, on the off chance that it hits that crystal, it's going to interact via something called a nuclear recoil. So it's going to impart some energy mm-hmm. um, and that's going to sort of create a flash in our detector. Now, there's lots of background noise that could also make flashes by interacting with that crystal. So we use this thing called an active scintillating veto. And so we submerge our crystal. This is sounding a bit like a Bond villain. Where we submerge <laughs> our crystal in this special um, scintillating liquid. Um, and what happens is basically the possibility that a dark matter particle will interact with any of us is so low, right? So the probability that it will interact with the scintillating liquid and make a flash and with the detector crystal and make a flash is so low that it's impossible. Mm-hmm. So if we see a flash in just the crystal, then we assume that's dark matter because any other background radiation would flash in the crystal and mm. in the scintillator. So just two flashes, no go. One flash, Nobel Prize. <laughs> well, good luck for that. I'm going to ask a follow-up ecologist question. So you, you mentioned that this dark matter is passing through us and in most cases it's having very little influence on us. And you've mentioned, obviously, that there's these, you know, um, phenomena in, in the galaxy that we can't really explain unless, in the, you know, in the absence of dark matter. So my question is, if we can find dark matter, what will change? Like, what, what, do you, what, what are some of the big things that you think would really change in our thinking that if we could actually find this stuff and, and know more about it and potentially, I guess, I don't know if you can even manipulate it, I don't know, but what, what, what do you think would be, would be so powerful about that? It's a really excellent question, and I think it's difficult to answer until we actually find ourselves yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, in that scenario. One of the, the sort of big picture things to think about, though, is dark matter um, pulled all of the structure in our universe together yeah. in the first place. So it, it decides the shape of our universe, which means that we'll, it will also help to decide what our universe looks like in the future. So it yeah. will sort of help us to predict yeah. what our galaxy and the galaxies nearby to us will look like in the future, which is helpful even if it's on timescales longer than sort of a, a regular human life. And um, I think it's important to note too that the technologies we're developing just to search for dark yeah. matter are already helping um, nuclear medicine, defence, uh, mining yep. companies, like there's a, a real sort of breadth to yep. the yeah, knock-on effects. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I have to say, Grace, I, I think back, you know, I'm a little bit older, um, and I think back to when we were first talking about um, the Higgs boson before that was detected, like, and it was 50 years, mm. I think, for that one, and then gravitational waves, which is more like 100 years uh, to detect. Now we're every other week, no big deal. And, in fact, it's opened up this entire a whole area of astronomy it was like this third space of astronomy where we went from optical to to radio and now gravity as a as a, a mechanism of doing astronomy, which to me is just wild. And I think you know maybe in fifty years, maybe well maybe in five years, maybe in fifty years, we'll be talking about dark matter as a as a form of astronomy, which um, would be cool. So look, thanks so much for chatting to us about this, and hope um, hope we get there. It's uh, there's so many different. I think every time an experiment fails, this is the way I look at it. Every time an experiment fails, that's one area we don't have to look at dark matter again. 
Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we're doing more and more experiments, but, you know, we're, this thing's getting cornered, right? So, you know, <laughs> sooner or later, there's going to be fewer places where it can hide and, and you can stop worrying about so many passing through them every day. It's, it is. <laughs> so, so we need a time estimate then, you physicists in the room. Are we talking, you know, what, My what's your estimate? Yeah, 40 to 50 years. I, I okay. think ecologists <laughs> and uh, astrophysicists can race each other to see whose field they can understand first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Grace, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the work and hopefully in the years time you'll be coming back to talk about the Nobel that you guys all won because you discovered uh, dark matter. So, Fingers crossed. Thank fingers you crossed. for having me. Dr. Grace Lawrence there, folks, uh, Research Associate in the Swinburne University of Technology Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Uh, a great place to do that work. Dr. Ewan, good to have you in the studio, buddy. Lovely to be back. Yeah. You uh, got anything big planned for the week? Uh, no, not really. No, just going to enjoy the hopefully the nicer weather compared yeah. to last week, which wasn't so pleasant. <laughs> a so. little bit wet. <laughs> Dr. Jean, good to see you as well. Lovely to see you also. I'm looking forward to emceeing the big Climate Summit Futures oh, event yeah. on Tuesday. Bring together a lot of amazing uh, climate scientists. Oh, that's going to so be I'm, wild. I get to do a little bit of emceeing and then a lot of listening. Yeah. Make have sure you, you take a, lots of chocolate for Have you got a purple well. sequin jacket? Oh, is that what you need to I'm thinking to get one, event? something like that, yeah. Something, a bit of Faith Healer type uh, apparel. Uh, Ewan, we yeah. need to go That's shopping That's a bit Austin Powers-ish, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Or, uh, yeah, a bit Bond, Bond feeling, yeah. Okay, something cool. I'm going shopping Yeah, today. do it, do it. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Uh, over here in the corner, I can't see her because she's behind a giant monitor. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great weekend. We'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.